The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, Christ. to Christ. Thank you, Kelsey. Um, well, I'm excited about this morning's passage. I just, I love these encounters with Jesus. I love the stories in the gospel. I love when we see Jesus interacting and the intentionality and the way that he engages with his disciples. Um, it just, it's one of the great joys of, of my life as a pastor to be able to, to teach uh, the scripture. So I'm excited about that. I, I want to begin this morning's sermon with, with a little bit of family business. Um, and that is to talk just very briefly about year-end giving. Uh, so we're approaching the end of, of a new year, and it's around this time that at all the congregations, we, we take a minute to talk about year-end giving and just ask you to consider, you know, your, your giving to Christ Prez at the end of the year. And neither Scott nor Stacy nor I are ever comfortable talking about that. Um, it's not a lot of fun to do, and so it's going to be quick and painless. And in fact, I've kind of already done it uh, to let you know that that's happening. But I did want to say a couple of things on that front. The first is, and these are just kind of a few bullet points, um, we will not uh, and do not make frequent appeals concerning giving um, from the pulpit. Uh, so that's not going to be a habit for us. It's not going to be something that we do routinely. Um, I never look at what individuals give, and I never will. I don't want to know uh, what people give to the church um, because it's just complicated information to have. Um, I was pastoring a church in Kansas City for a number of years, and, and it was a matter of principle never to know what anybody gave. I see the overall offering number on a weekly basis just to know where we are, but I don't know what anybody gives. And, and when I was pastoring in Kansas City, I had somebody come up to me once and hand me a $20,000 check and say, well, you know, I've missed the offering. Would you put this in? And it just, it was, I didn't, I didn't want to know that that person gave $20,000 to the church. Um, it was hard. It was hard after that, you know? Um, anyway, so I, I'm not ever going to look at that. And, and also, I want to give you an assurance. Um, and I know you're not asking for this, but I want to give you an assurance, and that's this, that we will never use shame to compel you to give a single penny to this church. And if I ever do that, just find another place to be, because um, you don't need that from a pastor. You don't need somebody compelling you with shame uh, to give, because the Lord does what he wants to do, um, and he's capable 
of, of executing his will perfectly. So those are a couple of things that I wanted to say, but also just, just to mention that we do take this time in November because the reality is that historically, this church, our church, and most churches, um, we see more than 20% of um, our annual giving come in in the month of December. Uh, sometimes up to 25%. And that's just kind of the way it is uh, with people. And so, and so we, we mention it, um, a large part of the budget of the church, over a million dollars actually, goes uh, to ministries and things that are happening around the city uh, that are outreach-related, things that are happening around the world. And so that's where a lot of the resources go. Um, but then the last thing that I wanted to mention on this front is that, is that God cares about our financial lives. Um, and we live in a world of currency. We live in a world of money, of expenses and income. And, uh, and, and so when we turn to, you know, the topic of year-end giving, we also do it on a Sunday where we're looking at a passage of Scripture where we get to, we get to see uh, the Lord's care when it comes to generosity and it comes to provision and our security. It's hard to live in a world where there's money. It's just hard to live in a world where there's money. Uh, every person in this room has to navigate this in some way, the reality of expenses and income. But issues related to money, I like to talk about money. I don't like to talk about um, asking people to give, but I love to talk about money. And the reason I love to talk about money is because issues related to money rarely have anything to do with your bank account. And they almost always have to do with questions of security and provision and what does it mean to know you're okay. Uh, and those are deeply theological questions and they are matters of the heart. And they're also things that we're actively and constantly working to address in one way or another, either through faith or through idolatry. And so with that said, I want to give away the point of my message uh, this morning, and, and it's in a simple sentence. It's a point of application. Uh, it, it's something that I want you to hear. It's something that you'll hear me say many times over the years uh, from this pulpit, and that's this. You have only ever had one provider. You have only ever had one provider. And it's never been your trust fund. It's never been your work ethic. It's never been your paycheck. It's never been your employer. It's never been your ability to be thrifty because all those things can and do fail. You only have one provider and you've only ever had one provider and that is the one who made you and the one who owns everything. And he makes us promises in his word that he will take care of us because he loves us, because we're precious to him. So you have a provider who knows your need. He knows your need before you ask and will always provide according to, and this is the best part, he will always provide according to his perfect wisdom and your deepest need. And so let's jump into this text look at it. We're going to set it up, talk about the background and the text and what's happening. And then we're going to talk a little bit about worry, uh, because worry is kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to discussions of generosity and, and giving and, and having. Um, so 
context for this passage is really, really cool. Uh, it's really important to see because it adds emotional resonance to what we're reading. So for the sake of biblical literacy, which is a passion of mine, I want to look at the background of this passage. It's significant to note when this takes place because a lot of us will read these stories of Jesus interacting with people and we'll almost see them like puppet shows, right? Like, like it just kind of happened uh, it, with no context other than, you know, the curtain opens and there's this conversation happening or there's people giving in the temple and Jesus is there with his disciples. But what's happening here in this passage, Jesus is only days away from his arrest and his crucifixion. So this happens on the Tuesday of Holy Week. So the religious leaders at this point are actively looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus and put him to death. He's a marked man. Only two days earlier before this happened, before he had this conversation about the widow and generosity and the Pharisees uh, and the scribes being people who are going to face condemnation uh, because of their duplicity. Only two days earlier, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the praises of the people, to the indignation of the religious leaders. Only one day prior, the day before this happened, Jesus, you know what happened? Jesus went into the temple and overturned the money changers' tables. So as a person who has been marked for arrest and death, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem like a king and letting people praise him, and then he's walking into the temple and he's overturning the money changers' tables. It helps, doesn't it, to know that this is the context in which he's talking because what's happening here, this scene, is kind of something akin to a fugitive lecturing on justice in the rotunda, rotunda of the Capitol building. He's in the temple, and he's making all these statements about the duplicity of the religious leaders and the generosity of this widow. And he's just the fact that he's just even there in the first place is bold, and that he's teaching with authority is incredible. And I bring that up because... because we need to get a sense of the emotional resonance of these verses. Jesus is laser-focused right now. He's focused on his mission. He's preparing to go to the cross. And if the temple is a beehive, Jesus is hitting it with a stick right now. That's what he's doing. His words are confrontational, and they're all about the kingdom of God, which he is ushering in. And so that context is important because it would be easy to just reduce this passage down to the simple platitude of, oh, here's a place where Jesus is saying, look at the generosity of the widow, be like her, give until it hurts. That's the story. You all can go now. But no, what's happening here, as with every encounter with Jesus, is this is about the heart. And specifically, this text is about where does your security lie? Where does your security lie? Which is a great question for all of us, and that question never seems to get tired. Where does your security lie? And so let's walk through it, and then talk about worry, and then talk about generosity. This is a study in contrast. You have the scribes and the Pharisees there, and and Jesus is, is giving strong words about them, because what's happening is Jesus is warning, and this is so good for us to hear, is that what Jesus is saying is that the sin of self-righteousness is not a victimless crime. 
Self-righteousness is not a victimless crime. And here's a place where you see it. The scribes are actively seeking to elevate their position for the purpose of personal gain. And the way they're doing that is they're stepping on others to get over them. And they're even preying on widows. And what, what Jesus means is what they're doing is they're exploiting the wealth of widows and obtaining it for themselves, which is such a vile thing to do because they're doing it in the name of God and they're doing it as though it's virtuous for these widows to give their money to them when in effect what they're doing is they're making off with the widow's deceased husband's wealth. And they're emptying what it took a lifetime to accumulate. And Jesus is sitting in the temple speaking that about the religious leaders. So if you're wondering what kind of a person Jesus is, is he strong? Can he handle difficult situations? He's poking the self-righteous in the chest here. It's strong. It's strong. And what Jesus does is he responds to this ruthless greed and the way he responds should chill us because he says there will come a reckoning for this. There will be a reckoning for this. They won't escape judgment. In fact, ironically, the judgment has already begun because Jesus is in the process of unmasking the greed. And it's making its way into the canon of Scripture. And so a reckoning has begun. Jesus is calling it out. The greed, the duplicity, the self-righteous, the crime of self-righteousness that wounds other people. And Jesus takes a seat and he's watching people bring their offerings. So this is around the time of Passover, which was the big holy feast. And so pilgrims are coming from all over and they're bringing kind of this annual offering and they're giving the offering. And the offerings in those days were coins and they were going into metal containers. And so it was noisy right? It was an opportunity for the, 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 the size of your offering to be heard. And so people are lining up and you know, it's because it's a part of their pilgrimage, it's a part of their worship, it's a part of their, their, their ritual of what they're doing, that they've planned the time they're going to come to the temple, they've planned how they're going to do this. And so they're coming in and they're making their offerings and, and wealthy people are coming in and it's just a noisy it's a noisy sound of a lot of money hitting a lot of metal. And there's this widow. And she's, she's there with the wealthy. And she's not wealthy. In fact, she has what amounts to one penny. Two coins that come together to make one penny. And she puts that into the offering plate. And Jesus calls attention to her. In fact, when you look at the text, what you see is that he, he sees this happen and then he gets his disciples and he brings them and he shows them. So it's not like they're just sitting around and a teachable moment happens and Jesus is like, oh, did you guys see that? No, he intentionally gathers his disciples to make this lesson plain. He teaches them this. And so they bring the offering and they 
put it in the plate. And Jesus says that what she's given is more than anything that anybody else has given that day. Why? Because she gave out of her need, not out of her abundance. She gave from a place of poverty that touched on her questions for security and provision. You know that that widow, before giving that offering, counted the cost of that. Many of us in this room have had those times where we've looked at giving to something and have wrestled with the question, can I afford to do this right now, right? That's such a great part of the process of generosity is getting to a place where you're looking at the resources you have, you're looking at your life, you're looking at the need of somebody else, you're looking at what does it look like to be a person who is generous versus a person who's greedy, and you count the cost and you go through, what can I afford to do? What can I afford not to do? And sometimes we can be ridiculous with this and we can say, now, now that, that tie, that's, is that 10% or is that just, you know, should I just decide what that number is? Yeah, you should decide what that number is. Probably should be more than you give um, currently. That just Jesus is, you know. He's rarely walking up to anybody and saying, actually, I think you're giving plenty. Um, you're good. In fact, I tip my cap to you. You know, usually the answer is how much should I give is probably more than you do now. Uh, that's, that's usually the answer, right? But, but he... He sees this, and what I love is that we know because she's a human being that she's had to count the cost. We have to count the cost, and her offering requires faith. A couple of things to note about this uh, before we discuss the elephant in the room of worry is, one, there's an element of absurdity to being generous with money for the sake of the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is God doesn't need anything. It's not that he, he's depending on the offering to be a certain amount in order for him to do a certain thing. He, he's just, he doesn't need that. This is something that is completely something that he calls us to do for the sake of deepening our faith in him. Uh, he's not depending on money. So it's, it, what that means is it's impossible to impress God with money. It's impossible. So the person who brings in, you know, who divvies up their large offering into four small bags instead of one big bag, so it looks like he's just giving and giving and giving and giving. God's not looking at that person and saying, you amaze me, right? He's saying, I see what you did there, and it's kind of gross. <laughs> so you can't impress God with generosity, like you, with an amount. You can't. But here's the other thing. God can do more through this widow's two pence than the wealthiest man's overflowing purse, and we actually have proof of that. And the proof of that, because Jesus says she's given more than anybody else, the proof is we know nothing of what came of all those other offerings, except for just one. And that is the widow's offering. And what we know came from her offering is that the Lord has used her two half pennies to search the hearts of millions. And that's an impressive thing. The Lord said, she's given more, that is amounting to more than all the bags of money that these other people are throwing in because who knows what happened with that. 
There's certainly no residual thing to look at and say, oh, it went to this. But the two half pennies? Here we are talking about them and asking questions that have more to do with money and everything to do with the Lord and his provision. So let's talk about worry because worry is one of the reasons why we struggle with generosity. It's because we struggle that if I give, then I will lack. And if I lack, I won't be able to provide for my family. I won't be able to provide for myself. I won't be able to have the things that I feel like I need to have in order to live. It's one of the most biggest obstacles we have to overcome when we talk about generosity because we're asking the question, okay, well, what, what happens if, I'm generous with others, but then I don't have what I need. What happens if I write the paper check, that archaic little paper check, and then an appliance breaks down or my transmission falls out of my car? What am I supposed to do then? As though that breaking of an appliance or the losing of a transmission is, is like the thing God was, God was like, I, I wish I could have told you somehow that that was going to happen so you wouldn't have given. It's, it's, we, we, can, we can have this concerned parental voice when it comes to worry. You know, a, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't give away too much now. You want to be careful. You want to be prepared for, for bad things that happen. And Jesus is telling us, be generous. Be a generous person. And he, and he tells us in Matthew 6, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, you can trust God. You can trust him to provide for you on what grounds? On the grounds that he cares for birds and flowers and he loves you more. He cares for birds, he cares for flowers, and you're more precious to him than they are. And so you can trust him. And this can be hard because what we have to recognize in that is that Jesus isn't talking about providing luxuries here. Jesus is talking about God providing basics. God providing food and shelter and clothing. He cares for you like he cares for the birds. He gives them what they need. And we pray it in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Wouldn't you love it if it was, give us this day our yearly bread? And, you know, and then I'll figure out how to actually use this year's yearly bread for next year so I can live on it. Uh, next year and then, and then I, I'm, I know that next year is taken care of and I'll just be, you know, we, we can get into these head games, right? Gives this day our daily bread, basic elements. It is worth noting that it is the Lord's perfect and pleasing will to keep you in a place of dependence on him. That's a kindness from God to keep you in a place of dependence. To say, I'm not gonna give you so much that you don't need me anymore. And so Jesus tells us this. We're to trust God to provide for our daily essentials. And if he's going to provide for our daily essentials, then what else do we need? He's, he's going to take care of us. And yet we often choose to worry. And, and what is worry? Worry is anxiety over a predicted outcome. That I think this is going to happen if I do this other thing. And what worry does is, it, is one, it shows that we, that we think we know what's going to happen, which we don't. Um, and it often reveals that we're, what we're trusting in to provide for our needs. But here's the thing about worry. Worry has empty pockets. It can't give you anything. It just can't. Worry has empty pockets. It, it doesn't have anything to give you. It fails you. 
Worry fails us for, I want to list three reasons very quickly uh, why worry fails us to help us see it. Um, The first is worry is foolish um, in the biblical sense of the word, uh, which is another word for simple-minded. Behind our tendency to worry lies a belief. So when you worry, it's because you're believing something. And what you're believing is that you should be able to control what happens in life. You believe that. You believe, I worry because there's something in me that feels like I should be able to control what happens in life, and I feel like I'm losing that control. And this, Scripture tells us, is foolishness. You can't control. Jesus asks the rhetorical question, what can you add to your life by worrying? The brilliance of this question lies in how it exposes worry's inability to change anything. It can't change anything. And it also shows us that we have this foolish tendency to think that a feeling can bring about an external change. And Jesus is saying worrying is simple-minded. It's a simple-minded thing. You can't add anything to your life by worrying. You can't worry provision into existence. So there's a foolishness to worry. Worry is also idolatrous. That's the second thing. Beneath simple folly lies a much deeper evil. Follow me on this. Uh, Worry indicates something. And what it indicates is an allegiance to a false god. Um, And it does this by revealing a commitment of the heart to a personal worldly security that runs so deep that it rules our emotional and spiritual lives. Worry reveals that I have this this commitment to a sense of personal worldly security and it ruins my emotional and my spiritual life to the extent that we judge God, which we wouldn't do unless we presume some measure of superiority over him, which isn't that the essence of idolatry. Is if I'm worrying that God is going to fail me, it's because I'm I'm presuming I have a kind of a superiority over him in how I see what should happen. And that I think God is not going to be able to come through with what he needs to do. Scripture doesn't promise us an easy life. It just doesn't. Scripture doesn't promise you that you're going to fulfill all your dreams. In fact, many of the verses in Scripture indicate the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. My professor, Dan Doriani, said, Jesus promises God's care, not a carefree life. The pursuit of a carefree life, when we're not promised this, but rather God's care, can be a strong indicator that we've rebelled against his lordship, and instead of living to serve him, we want him to serve us, and that's really the heartbeat of idolatry, as I look to my gods to serve me. And that's the demand that worry makes. Last, worry is dishonest. We live in a culture that tells us that if we feel something, it must be true. Follow your heart. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't follow your heart. You just can't trust it. It doesn't know much. <laughs> you know, don't follow your heart. If we feel something, it must be true. That's our culture. When Jesus tells us not to worry, think about this. When he tells us not to worry, he's telling us, I want you to refuse to nurture an emotion. 
God cares about how we nurture our emotional lives. And so when he says, do not worry, do not fear, he's saying, you're accountable before God for how you nurture and yield to your emotions, which is so countercultural. If you feel something, yield to it. It's trying to tell you something true. A lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's trying to tell you something that's patently false. Not all of our emotions tell us the truth. Worry tells us a simple lie. There's this uh, Tolkien scholar, I'm a nerd, uh, named Patrick Curry, who says this about despair, and I think the same thing could be said about worry. Uh, So I'm going to read the quote. I mean, he uses the word despair, so that's what I'm going to use, but it applies to worry as well. He says this, Despair is for people who know beyond any doubt what the future is going to bring. So worry is for people who know beyond any doubt what the future is going to bring. And he says nobody is in that position. So despair is not only a kind of sin theologically, but also a simple mistake because nobody actually knows. And in that sense, he says there's always hope. It's just a simple mistake to worry because we think we know what's going to happen and you just don't. You don't know. Worry insists certain things are true that you have no honest way of knowing are true. And so we buy in and we put on ourselves all kinds of a sense of looming disaster. And we don't know. What we do know is Jesus tells us, I take care of the birds and I adorn the fields in the splendor of these flowers and you're more precious to me than they are. I will take care of you. Part of the way he takes care of us is by giving us things. Part of the way he takes care of us is by withholding things that we really wish we had because we would feel so much better if we had them. Jesus says he doesn't want our hearts to go there. So I want to conclude with just a kind of a personal testimony, I guess, when it comes to generosity and worry because I'm a person who struggles with worry. I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with depression. Uh, As you get to know me, uh, I'll tell you stories about those kinds of things. And uh, that's a part of my life, as I know it's a part of many of your lives here, um, that you wrestle with these things. And I worry about things that 45-year-old fathers worry about. I worry about my ability to provide for my family. I worry about my ability to continue to provide for my family. I worry about when my kids are college age, which one of them is now. How does that work? And whoever comes up with, how do people do that? Like, I don't understand how any of that works. This is just expensive, right? And, and so and I worry about these things. I worry about what it will take to keep things moving along. I resonate with the wealthy givers in the text, um, that feeling of pride that you feel. And it struck me that, that I, I bet that the pride that those people giving the large sums of money felt had less to do with the amount of money and had more to do with the fact that they were comfortably able to do that. That I'm comfortably able to give. Oh, wouldn't that be a glorious place to be? To be able to say, I'm generous and I never feel it. That's where I want to be, right? I know I'm not alone in this. Jesus, help my unbelief in this. God wants us to see not only our weakness, 
but he also here wants us to see his goodness. I, I confess my weakness to you, the things I worry about, but, but one thing I have to do is I have to share uh, what's good and what's true as well, and that's this. I've been married for 23 years. I've come up with lots of ways to worry about money. And I don't think I'm done. I think there's lots more inventive ways to do that. But let me tell you the truth. Here's the truth. Never in our 23 years have we ever not been provided for. That's a fact. We've had lean times. Those were always important for the heart. We've had seasons where we did not know how we would make ends meet. And God always provided in some way. And so when I look back on the Lord's provision in my life, there's only one conclusion that I can draw with any integrity. And that's this. God has always provided for us. And so on what basis could I stand here and tell you that, yeah, but next year I don't know if he will? How could I do that with any amount of integrity when all I know is 23 years he has? You can't talk about money from a biblical perspective without talking about God and what you believe about his character. He's either good and able to provide or he isn't. Do you believe that God provides for you reluctantly, grudgingly, or out of his joy? Ask him to show you your heart when it comes to generosity, but also ask him to show you his heart when it comes to generosity because Jesus' goodness and his faithfulness is true whether we believe it or not. And so may he help our unbelief And may he use our generosity for the glory of his name and the furthering of his kingdom. And in the process, may we remember and proclaim that we have only ever had one provider and he happens to be the maker and sustainer of heaven and earth. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this widow. And uh, it's not a parable. It's not a made-up story. It's something Jesus observed. And so this is a woman that got herself together, gathered up her offering, and brought it to the temple during a high holy feast and offered it publicly to you. And she did not know that you were in the room watching and that you would then take her generosity to you and use that to minister to us. So thank you for doing that, Lord. That's a kindness. It's a gift. It's your generosity to us that you would use her two pence to search our hearts when it comes to what we think about you and your care for us. So take us through that process, Lord. And we thank you for your kindness and your love and your provision and for being the only provider we've ever had and ever will have. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.